everyone, and welcome back to But Why the Podcast, the podcast where me, Adrian, and Matt talk about the things in pop culture that people say matter and ask the question, but why though? Before we get started, we just wanted to tell you to head on over to all of our social media and get involved in our conversations. Check out our Twitter at But Why Though PC and our Facebook, facebook.com slash But Why Though PC. Also, we're Twitch affiliates now, so you can sub to us, watch a stream, um, get access to funny noises when we're playing. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. Come spend your nights with us while we play games at twitch.tv slash butwhydopc. And while we're on that note, we are actually raising money for Stack Up, the military gaming charity that empowers veterans through the power of gaming. So if you have anything you can donate, donate it to them. Head on over to our Twitch channel and click on the Stack Up logo. Click that, it'll send you to the donation page and you can help out a great cause and a great organization that we've covered in our Missions That Matter episode, um, which you can go back and listen to to find out more. And as always, enjoy the show. Welcome back, and today we're going to a little hole in the ground where a hobbit lives. We're talking about J.R.R. Tolkien. As always, I'm your host, Kate, and I'm here with Adrian. Hey, how's it going? And Matt. Hello. And where's this hole? In the Shire. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, it's that a hobbit like hole. A, that is like an Alice in Wonderland reference. No, so the hobbit starts off, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That's the first sentence. Yeah, I've been so long since I read that book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so I guess just this was a really broad... I didn't know how to do this this topic because there's so much that can be said about Tolkien. Um, so I decided to go with him and as an author, as an imaginative person, and as a scholar. And so I want to know what you guys know about Tolkien. Anna, and can you be more uh, precise with your question? <laughs> I don't understand it. Thank you, Twitter. <laughs> Thank you, Twitter, for oh, that joke. Oh, God. Dying. That Dying. dude obviously doesn't listen to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, anyway, what do you know about Tolkien, and I guess how did you get involved with him? Any any of his media, or the media around him? I don't got know how involved, to face I hit him that. up, went to a bar. <laughs> I would have loved to have gone with a bar, to a bar with Tolkien. Or Tolkien. Yeah, I was going to ask this. What would we say? Are we saying Tolkien I'll be calling or Tolkien? Him so I'm we're not state this now. <laughs> Are you the the Tolkien white guy of the podcast? Well, I thought that was understood. <laughs> <laughs> it is Tolkien. Yeah, Tolkien. Yeah, Tolkien. It's probably going to get mis 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 mispronounced. Doesn't mean I don't love him any any less. As with any, as with anything, there are no criteria for fan other than loving things. Um, we have a shirt with that on it. Um, but anyway, so yeah, guys, what do you know about Tolkien, and how did you get involved with him? So, for me, I mean, I know, like, his, his big his big stuff. I mean, he's the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, you know, uh, famous for, you know, kind of like the godfather of, like, high fantasy. And the reason why we have a lot of the stuff that I love today, like Game of Thrones and Dungeons and Dragons and things like that. I don't know too much about, like, his life, 
and stuff. So I'm, I look forward to kind of hearing about um, what he did, like outside of writing, or like what led him, led him into writing and things like that. But I mean, uh, my grandma, my dad's, my dad's mom, um, she used to read the Lord of the Rings books and the Hobbit books to my dad and my uncles when they were kids. So just by association, I've known about Lord of the Rings for like as long as I can remember. Um, read the books, and then when the movies came out, you know, we saw all the movies in the theater and everything like that. So that's where I know Tolkien from. Um, obviously from the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings stuff. I have read The Hobbit, but it was so, so long ago when I read it. And I also learned from Legends of Tomorrow that he was in World War II. And who was he inspired to write by? I believe it was the Adam of that episode. <laughs> Ray sure. Palmer. Ray Palmer. We can but, say thank you, Ray Palmer. Yes. I believe if I remember the episode correctly. <laughs> Yeah, minor spoilers, but like Ray Palmer, like basically saved everything in nerddom that we love in Legends of Tomorrow, and that's why he's so great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, Legends of Tomorrow is great, so go watch it. Um, yeah. So for me, um, I have known about Tolkien pretty pretty much my entire life. Um, my dad read me the hobbit when i was little and i think i've told the story to quite a few people my dad actually made for, uh bilbo into a girl um so for the longest time i thought bilbo was a girl um and so i thought that i was bilbo and stuff but anyway uh so my dad um got me into it and then my aunt um she actually took me to the midnight showings of all of the lord of the rings movies when they came out and it was, like, a really big bonding experience for us. Um, she also took me to, like, the Harry Potter ones. And so that was just, like, our world. And I, I, I think that this was the first time that I was, like, so, um, like, watching the movie so immersed in a world where I was, like, oh, wow. And then as I got older, I finally, like, reread Lord of the Rings, the books, because I've read them all. Um, I've also read The Cimmerillion, um, which, um, yeah. And it's just, yeah. I love him. So on a side note, which I find interesting is, your family's all read to you. My mom, parent, my mom didn't read shit to me, but um, I did find it interesting you guys read you know, all these fantasy and creativeness, and I was basically given math problems, video games to do, and memorization, and statistic books on sports with numbers. That's like, a I had the entire, insight. I had an entire <laughs> book of the encyclopedia from 1995... Or from like eighteen, or from like nineteen eighty nine to like nineteen ninety five, ninety seven of like all the baseball stats you could ever think of. And I remember a little red video game that did nothing but math problems to get better, and the blue one was nothing but memorization. But nobody read me anything. Yeah, my mom read to us all the time. Well, she read to me. Like I don't know if like if my brother and sister like remember my mom reading to us because that's like before you know she started like taking over like the world and doing all this stuff but like she read us she read us the hobbit uh the harry potter series you know limity snicket stuff so we got read to a whole bunch well i got read to a whole bunch when i was little my mom didn't have the patience for it um my dad did because i asked a lot of questions like (laughs) kind of how i am you what really that's how i was with the books and so my mom always says that, like, she's just really thankful she found my dad because she finally found somebody to read for me. Um, so he read me The Hobbit. Um, that was really the only, like, 
he read me like the little books that he had but he never really read me anything new he always read me stuff that he had from when he was a kid um because he brought all those books when he moved in with my mom and me and he like we just read through those um and then i started correcting his pronunciation of things and then he made me read to him so that that's where that's at <laughs> i mean i mean i don't think they read to me i don't recall i don't put this way if they did i have no memory of it so therefore it probably wasn't that high priority it makes me feel any better matt I did get like shoved in front of a TV and hooked on phonics. Got put on a whole bunch. So I like, did too. nope, didn't so, know. We don't care about language. <laughs> yeah, so we kind of, I kind of got some of it a little bit. I don't know. I was really good at sitting in front of the TV, coloring and taking down infomercial numbers because my grandma had HSN on all the time. Yeah. Okay. We're getting deep into our childhood, and you're learning a lot about us today. I was setting um, math records when I was like in fifth, first grade. Well, that's why you're so smart and a scientist. Yeah, and that's why it don't make me choose or do anything creative. <laughs> also true. So moving away from our experiences with Tolkien and into his history. So the JRR in J.R.R. Tolkien stands for John Ronald Rule. It's a very British name. Um, he was born on January 3rd of 1892 and died September 2nd of 1973. He was an English writer, poet, and this is the most important part, a philologist. Um, and so philology, if you don't know is the study of language in oral and written historical sources and it's a co it's a combination of literary criticism history and linguistics so essentially what you would do is you would reconstruct not only the language that people would use in historical settings but the actual settings around them and this is what allowed him to actually this is one of the things that is the base for his um leg legendarium which is what the entire works revolving around middle earth is called um, so philology is important. Um, and he was also a university professor. I will say this, his picture and like his name, like I can't ever like actually see that as him because I always see him as just that old hobbit with gray hair. Even though that's old not Bilbo? Even, yeah, and that's not, I know that's not even him, but that's all, like that's talking to me. That's who it is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not wrong. That's how I feel. <laughs> Okay, um, so as we go into like, his achievements, um, he served as the Rawlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon and, and, and Fellow of Pembroke College at Oxford from 1925 to 1945, and he was also the Merton Professor of English Language and Literature and, fe and Fellow of Merton College in Oxford from 1945 to 1959. So he was not messing it around when it came to scholarship. Like, he was not an author first. Um, and then um, Tolkien was appointed a commander of the Order of the British Empire by Queen Elizabeth II on the 20th of March, 1972, which is hilarious because he hated the British Empire and he wanted the British Empire to not be an empire anymore. Um, so after Tolkien's death, his son Christopher published a series of works based on his father's extensive notes and unpublished manuscripts. This included the Cimmerillion. Um, these, together with The Hobbit, The Lord of the, Ring, Lord of the Rings, from a connected body of tales, poems, fictional histories, invented language, and literary essays, essays about a fantasy world called Arda and Middle-earth within it. And so this, guys, if you ever heard it, it's not a saga, it is a legendarium. And uh, this is what he called it, and this is what um, the Tolkien nerds call it. Um, and so it's really cool because like he made because he didn't want to just make a series of books he didn't want to make a series of poems he wanted to create this like vast expansive legend um, that contained an entire world which is one of the reasons why his writings and works are so immersive cool first question yes. um, 
is legendary. First of all, that sounds like super fake. I know, like, like he just like made it up, and like that's like, like he just like that's his own word. But like, if I heard that anywhere else other than this, I think you'd you'd be lying to me. Uh, so, is only his work legendariums, or is something like Game of Thrones, which is like expansive and has like its own kind of like mythology and stuff, classified as legendarium too? So the reason it's a legendarium and not a series or a saga is because it's not just one series from one story. Like, it's not one continuous story. You have The Hobbit, you have um, The Lord of the Rings, but then you also have The Silmarillion, and you have other tales within Middle-earth that take place before the Battle of Mordor, as well as everything that happens after um, after those events. Or, all of this takes place before The Lord of the Rings, and it fills in the gaps, and it builds in these little histories about the world that they're in. So if you hear a character reference, um, like um, I think uh, um, Erwin and Aragorn are compared to these two, um, these two lovers in Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien actually wrote out that story separately, and it was unpublished, but then um, it was a part of the works when he would present and stuff. So essentially, every... Every name that gets dropped has an entire story behind it that's detached from the main story of the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Um, that's why it's a legendarium and not a series or a saga. Okay. Are yeah. the Tolkien nerds like the people in Clerks too? <laughs> no, it's only one return. It's not of the king. It's of the Jedi. <laughs> so it's of the king. Um, but anyway... Uh, no, I, I honestly haven't met that many Tolkien nerds. That's why I asked. In I all like, honesty, like, apparently we don't really exist on Twitter. Um, but I mean, like, past just the movies. So, like, the movies as a fandom are their own thing. Well, I assume and that. Then, That's why. But yeah, and so, like, then the Legendarium and Tolkien, and, like, there's actually a Tolkien Society, um, which are just scholars of Tolkien um, and the world around him, because he did a lot more than write the Legendarium as well. Um so, I mean, I honestly haven't met another Tolkien nerd, in all honesty. Except for, like, the kids I went to, like, elementary school with, because they really love the Lord of the Rings books. And the X-Men, so they're my best friends. Um, yeah, does that answer your question, Adrian, about the Legendarium? Yeah, kind of, sort of. I don't know. I, I feel like it's, like, exclusive to Tolkien, but I can see, like, other things being Legendariums. But, like, just because it's, like, J.R.R., like... I don't think anyone would call other stuff yeah, Legendariums like, yeah, I because think of... Could... Like I think you could call like maybe Star Wars. Like, I was like that that's what like I was thinking. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. thinking yeah. of. Yeah, like George, like George R. R. Martin. I don't think his series would fit into this at all. But I would say like the Star Wars EU definitely. Like I would say that because um, well, they've been able to flesh out and like. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Stuff. Like if George exactly. R. R. Martin like went back and like did a like a prequel book from like the Long Night or something like that. Then or I, if then, he just wrote out, like, the stories and the histories of that world beyond what you see. Because I'm, I'm sure he's, like, J, uh, a token, like, where he has, like, XYZ character that you're never going to see, you know, fleshed out. He probably has, like, a whole backstory that's probably going to get published after he dies, probably, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of the, and I'll go into it when I talk about his writings a little bit, but, like, a lot of them weren't published until his son published them. Um, and, I mean, and a lot of it, I mean... This was fun to him, and he didn't necessarily want to, like, make a lasting book series, in all honesty. And I'll get into that as we as we. So he wasn't a George Lucas and wanted every dime? Yeah, he wasn't. 
I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll get into like that, that type of stuff. But yeah, Adrian, I, I, I think I've only ever heard this associated with Tolkien. Um, but I think Star Wars books would be the closest. Yeah, I'm, I'm just doing like a Google search of it, and all, all of it talks about Tolkien, so I can, I can see that. But I can yeah. see Star Wars that, kind of being in that yeah. kind of expansive range. But it's also not, but it's also done by like different people, so it's That's not. That's like, about to say. It's, it's not, not really done the, by same, the same person, so it's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas he did all of this. Um. So yeah. Okay. So moving into his military service because this is really important. Um, so he actually delayed his service in World War One by completing his degree first, and this actually led him to have a lot of public ridicule until he joined up and served. Um, and while he was there, he really hated war, and he really hated the men that he was with. And he said um, he sent letters to his wife saying that gentlemen, gentlemen were rare in the military, and even more so, humans were rare. Um, so, like, he had a really hard time being in that turmoil and, um, in trauma, um, but it actually led him to develop his philological skills, like, even more. So he actually made his own secret language of dots and lines that only his wife knew how to read. And he did that so that he could secretly send his wife, um, where he was and that it wouldn't get caught by the censors. So if they were moving, he could, like... He could not send a letter saying, hey, hon, we're going to Paris now, um, because that wouldn't get to her. But for her own peace of mind, what he did was he developed a language to include his movement so she could track it. Um, which is really awesome. Like, he had a secret language with his wife. It's so cool. I think it's cool. Yeah, it's super cool. Like, he's a super smart dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I knew that they did that in Legends of Tomorrow, but I didn't think it was, like, that big of a thing. I didn't know that that was an actual true thing. So it's kind of cool to, to know did, that he was, like, legit They've pretty well accurate, uh, <clears throat> being accurate on that show, to some sense. Yeah, I like it. Cool. cool. Yeah, give, give, um, me, give me more, Kate. <laughs> um, so he did eventually end his um, his military service in World War One uh, when he got trench fever, which is um, spread through lice. And he ended up spending, like, the entirety, like, I think it was, like, it's about over a year that he spends, like, in and out of hospitals and desk jobs and stuff for the end of World War One. And then um, when World War Two breaks out, he ends up becoming a code breaker, obviously. Um, and he actually sees some of the, um, I think it's the Battle of Somme. And he sees some of the biggest battles between his service in World War One and World War Two that it really, like, shapes him um, because he's been in the trenches, he's seen what it looks like to be deprived of everything. And so these deprivations, you can really see. Like, that's why Frodo and Sam's Road to Mordor seems so real and barren and, like, traumatic. It's because he knew how to write it. So is the movie with Nicolas Cage, Codebreaker, based on him? No. That's, oh, okay. bra- that's based on Navajos, who were the U.S. Codebreakers. Okay. Yeah. So he was a code breaker before that, and then he was a code creator as well. But yeah, you mean Wind Talkers, the movie with Nicolas Cage? Yes, same thing. Yeah, it was Nav- Navajo code breakers in that in that case. But essentially, like you had a lot, like Nazis used a lot of code. So, um, so because he had gotten that chronic fever, he understood what that was like, um, and he essentially said later that having seen his friends die 
and having been and i mean really close friends like not just somebody who he met in the military not that that's not really close but i mean like men that he had been with prior to his service as well join enter with him and not come home really gave him this keen awareness of what of what tragedy is and the tragedy of war um and being great britain the tragedy essentially of empire and um constant struggle from the other side not just the british side uh so in his writing and work this is probably like the most mammoth thing he did um was he translated beowulf in 1926 um but it wasn't published until he died um in 2014 and this is his single He credits Beowulf with being the single greatest influence on Middle Earth. And if you don't know what Beowulf is, it's an old it's a it's an old English poem, um, a long poem. So it's like thousands of lines. It's like their definition of poems, like is a lot different. It's written in prose, so it makes it a poem, but it's essentially a damn novel. Um, And it is one of it is the pinnacle of old English literature. Um, And so what he did was he translated it, um, which is a really big feat. I have read that. And it's actually really good. The movie is awful. The movie is terrible. But the actual bad. poem itself is actually really good. Yeah, it's really, really good. And this was not only like a labor of like scholarly, like it wasn't a scholarly labor, it was a labor of love. Um, like I said, this was his single greatest influence on Middle Earth. And although he didn't publish it, he gave lectures on Beowulf really, really often. And he fought with scholars at the time about the importance of Beowulf. Um, because at that time, people saw Beowulf and the monsters within it as childish and not as an epic. They saw the monsters as being not accurate, and, and the monsters and then the tribes within Beowulf as not being accurate examples of tribal warfare. And Tolkien said, no, 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 no. Beowulf is a story on human destiny and the monsters are central to telling about this intrinsic piece of humanity and you need to see this beyond what you're thinking about and this at the time that he's doing this um, and giving his lectures so the 20s and 40s it's a time where you have like um, armchair anthropologists who are receiving like field notes from people with um, meeting uncontacted tribes and people like that and expecting like oh well this is this is pure this is this is authentic and Tolkien was you have to look beyond that and you have to look at how people tell their stories and so this like Beowulf in his writing is something as even though it wasn't it it wasn't published until 2014 it was something that greatly impacted his work and definitely is a way that people read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit now as Tolkien scholars so beyond that he i I do want to say i am going to do some mapping of things onto onto lord of the rings but um from tolkien's perspective people try to map lord of the rings onto his life and experiences in england um but where they hold um but even though tolkien saw his work as containing fundamental truths about human existence he discouraged reading his work as an allegory for his own life or every, or the struggles that were being faced at a time at hand. Essentially, he wanted it to have fundamental truths to transcend, what, to transcend whatever time it was being read in, and so he didn't focus on those details. And so a lot of Tolkien scholars will map it onto what he's doing or what was happening at the time, and that's not how he wanted his stuff to be read. 
he wanted it to be read like a, a true legend, a, a true myth. Like, what does this talk about of, you know, um, you know, humanity and fundamental truths? Um, he was also a super devout Catholic, but he hated C.S. Lewis's use of religion in his works. So even though Tolkien was extremely devout, um, and there is a poem in Mordor that is similar to the Lord's Prayer, but it's not exact. He took great issue with the fact that C.S. Lewis used Christian allegories in his work um, because he believed that that did not offer it to be used by many people and to like get at those fundamental truths, um, which is a really like progressive take for a Catholic at the time. Um, so... Yeah. <laughs> he actually converted C.S. Lewis, because C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he met Tolkien, and then Tolkien made him a Catholic, but then he went to the wrong he's, church. And yeah, he's he the... He, he became everything that he hated, or he created yes. everything that he hated. Yes. <laughs> if, yeah, that's so not, some, if that's not Greek tragedy, I don't know what is. That's awesome. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's something, like, because uh, I know that I've seen some people like, but Christianity in, in Tolkien, and like, it, it's that's not what he wanted. If you read it that way, that is not what Tolkien wanted, and he actually hated C.S. Lewis for doing that kind of work. But yeah, so going into his um, individual works, I'm going to give you a breakdown. Um, so you have The Hobbit, and um, Tolkien never expected his stories to become as popular as they did. Um, and by sheer accident, The Hobbit took off, and he had written it some years before his own children, and it um, came uh, came to the attention of Susan Dagnall in 1936, who was an employee of a London publishing firm, and she persuaded Tolkien to submit it for publication. And when it was published a year later, the book attracted both adult readers and children's, and it became popular enough for publishers to talk to, to ask Tolkien for a sequel. Um, and then from that, you have The Lord of the Rings. And The Lord of the Rings is, um, after this request for a sequel, Tolkien began what would become, like, pretty much his most famous and epic novel. Um, it was originally published in 1954 and 1955, and Tolkien spent more than 10 years writing the primary narrative and dependencies for The Lord of the Rings, during which time he received constant support of the Inklings, in particular his closest friend C.S. Lewis, other Chronicles of Narnia, that changes as he writes more things, um, as I said. Um, and when it says appendices, these are those little pieces that I was talking about, Adrian, that, like, make Middle Earth a giant world and compose a legendarium. Yeah, um, So yeah. essentially... About that, that, one t that one town that you're never going to see in person, but if you ask him about it, he can give you all the background characters and who works in the Smith in, you know, 1946. And that's obviously yep. a terrible date, but yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so for him, this was a giant and intensive labor. Um, and both The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings are set against the background of The Cimmerillion. So if you haven't read The Cimmerillion and you're listening now, you should go read it. It's really cool. Um, but a long time after that. Um, so Tolkien, at first, he intended Lord of the Rings to be in a children's tale style, um, kind of like The Hobbit, but it grew really, really dark and more serious in the writing. And if you've ever read Lord of the Rings, the books are way darker than the movies, um, let me tell you. Um, and so because of that, he um, it became to address a very specific older audience and was drawing on the immense backstory of... Um, of Beleriand that Tolkien had constructed in previous years. 
and which eventually saw posthumous publication of the Silmarillion and other volumes. And so Tolkien's influence weighs heavily on the fantasy genre, and a lot of that is because of Lord of the Rings. Because even though The Hobbit got a lot of recognition, what solidifies this on essentially like the adult radar is Lord of the Rings. Which is also with all of this background and all of this knowledge and all these like Silmarillions and legendariums is why the MMO is so disappointing. <laughs> Because you so are much source material. you are not wrong, and like that's not his fault, and I think that we can save that yes. like, for like the Lord of the Rings episode. But oh, I haven't man, I have stuff you about are that. you are so right about like how disappointing that is, given this huge background that we have. It wasn't something they him. just had to make up and go. They had you just had to copy and paste, buddy. Like it was real easy. <laughs> oh gosh, you're gonna have so much to add when I get to that part. Oh. You have no idea. <laughs> um, so the Silmarillion, um, Tolkien wrote a brief sketch of the mythology, which included the tales of Baron and Luthien and uh, Turin. And that sketch eventually evolved into the Quenta, Silmarillion, Quenta Silmarillion, um, an epic history that Tolkien started three times but never published. Tolkien desperately hoped to publish it along with The Lord of the Rings, but publishers declined. And this was why he did the appendices for that book and why Lord of the Rings took him 10 years. Um, why they declined? Moreover, because printing costs were very high in 1950s Britain. Only they had more printers. And that's also what led them to publish Lord of the Rings in three volumes. Um, the story of this continuous redrafting... Time out. I'm sorry. The story of, it, of this continuous redrafting is told in the posthumous series, The History of Middle-Earth, edited by Tolkien's son Christopher Tolkien. And from around 1936, Tolkien began the extended framework to include the tale of the fall of Numenor, uh, which was inspired by the legend of Atlantis. Um, so there's a lot. There's a lot to this world. Um, so from the Cimmerillion, and the reason it gets published, and this is one of the first works published, is because he had appointed his son as literary executor. And um, what happened was he organized some of his material into a single coherent volume and then published that as a Cimmerillion in 1977, five years after his dad passed. And the Cimmerillion uh, received a Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel the next year. So... Yeah. So, I mean, I don't want to take, like, a shot at, like, modern authors, but, like, this is a lot. He did a lot. Yeah, he did a he lot. And this is, like, why I don't understand, like, the criticism of, like, why it takes J uh, George R. R. Martin so long, like, to write his books. It's because, like, these dudes are, like, creating expansive worlds. Like, what do you expect them to do? Pump it out in, like, a year? Printing costs, man. Like, there's more that goes into it than just... <laughs> writing down your thoughts and like coming out with a movie like it's it's a little bit harder yeah. than that especially if you're doing this that's like its own thing like nothing is lord of the rings but lord of the rings at this also, time the world of middle earth is not anything else yeah i <laughs> yeah. also find it interesting i guess we can talk just about his uh between his works and you talk about his tragedies that obviously authors just don't seem to have that these days they're yeah. not going through World War II of seeing like this. So you're writing this story, this tragedy, but you, like you said, he was able to do it because he lived it. Yeah. And a lot of people don't seem to have that. Yeah, I don't yeah. know very many professors who were like, oh, I'm going to go be a professor or I'm going to get my degree. All my friends die. And then I'm going to go to war after that. It's, Pretty much. Yeah, it's definitely unique perspective for sure. Yeah. That and like, uh, yeah. 
And that's why his, his things, that's why Lord of the Rings is so tragic, too, is he really tra channels, channels that trauma and tragedy, um, especially within a group of friends, a fellowship, if you may call it that, um, and what they go through. Um, okay, um, so the next piece is The Unfinished Tales and the History of Middle-Earth. Um, so in 1980, Christopher Tolkien published a collection of more fragmentary material under the title Unfinished Tales of Numenor and, and Middle-Earth. Um, and the reason it's unfinished is because this was a lot of the work that um, Tolkien was using to build the world as he wrote. And so in the subsequent years of 1983 through 1960, 1996, he published a large amount of the remaining unpublished materials together with notes and extensive commentary in a series of 12 volumes called specifically the history of middle earth these contain unfinished abandoned alternative and outright contradictory accounts so like there are some tales that counteract other tales um and some historical facts for middle earth that counteract other <laughs> historical facts for middle earth um since they were always a work in progress for tolkien and he only rarely settled on a definitive version version for any of the stories there is not complete consistency between the lord of the rings and the hobbit the two most closely related works to this because Tolkien never fully integrated all of their traditions into each other. Um, and he commented in 1965 while editing The Hobbit for a third edition that he would have preferred to completely rewrite the book uh, because of the style and its prose. So one thing that you should also know about Tolkien, if any of this hasn't told you already, he was a perfectionist <laughs> and he wrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote not just when printing costs were too high. So next you have The Children of Huron, and this is a novel that tells the story of Turin Turambar and his sister Nanor. Um, Children of Huron, of Huron Talion, um, and if you play Shadow of Mordor, you actually play as Talion. I don't know if it's the same one, because I just started the game, but name reference. Did you start the game, or did you die? I died a whole bunch, so I'm still technically at the start of the yeah, game. Yeah, it's all right. It's all right. I died a whole bunch, but I started the game, too. It's so hard, and then they just get harder. Every time I die, it gets harder. She just kept making captains. I did. Yeah, exactly. It was <laughs> bad, and it was depressing. Yeah, I, st I, I started over, because I was like, this is too hard. I, I messed up. I messed up. But I understand. I also don't know if it's the same person, to be to be honest, either. Yeah, I don't either, but it's the same. It, it's it, That's where the name, at least that, that, that surname comes from. Um, so the material was compiled by Christopher Tolkien from the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales on the History of Middle-Earth and Unpublished Manuscripts, and put into one specific novel. Um, this is the style for all of these as well. Um, then you have The Fall of Gondolin, a tale of beautiful, mysterious city destroyed by dark forces that called the first real story of Middle-Earth, which was published in August of 2008. Oh, will be published in 2000, August of 2018 as a standalone book edited by Christopher Tolkien. Um, and then there is Baron and Luthien, and this is the couple that Arwen, um, Arwen and Aragorn are compared to, um, because they're star-crossed lovers, and the tale of Baron and Luthien is one of the oldest and most often revised in Tolkien's legi uh, Legendarium. The story is one of three contained within the Silmar Silmarillion, which Tolkien believed to warrant their own long-form narr narratives, and it was published as a standalone book and edited by Christopher under the title Baron and Luthien. And I will tell you why that's important as we move through this, because it's like a really, it, it's how I end this section. Um, and then you have the legend of Sigurd and Grindon. And this just, this is kind of really simple because it just retells the legend of Sigurd and the fall of the Niflungs um, from Germanic mythology. He really loved Nordic and Germanic mythology. Um, 
The Fall of Arthur is a long narrative poem that was composed by Tolkien in the mid-1930s. Um, it's alliterative, alliterative and extending to almost a thousand lines, imitating the old English style Beowulf meter in modern English. Um, and then, of course, you have the Beowulf translation and commentary, which I talked about earlier. And like I said, it was... It was translated between 1920 and 1926, but was published after his death by his son. Um, then his other works are the story of Colavero and Mr. Bliss, which is a child, which is a child's book. Um, but this is the important part. So Baron and Lithian are really important because of what it means to him and his wife. Uh, so Tolkien had the name Lithian engraved on Edith, his wife's tombstone in Oxford. And when Tolkien died 20 months, 21 months later, at age 81, he was buried at the same grave and had Baron added to his name. Um, so, Stop. Yeah. Stop it. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. That is too much. That yeah. is too much. Yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about the story. So Luthien was the most beautiful of all the children of um, Iluvatar and forsook her immortality for her for her love of the mortal warrior Baron. After Baron was captured by the forces of the Dark Lord Morgoth, Luthien rode to rescue to his rescue upon the talking wolfhound Juan. Um, ultimately, when Baron was slain in battle against the demonic wolf um, Karkroth, Luthien, like Orpheus, approached the Valor, the angelic order of beings, and placed, um, placed in charge of the world of Eru, or God, and persuaded them to restore her beloved to life. Yeah. It's I, adorable, right? Yeah. Now you're adorable. making everybody cry. It's yeah. so adorable. And you can also see the parallels between Aragorn. Yeah, for sure. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> because he sought out this entire world. But yeah, no. So I had to include that because it's really it's really powerful because it also shows you how integrated the world of Middle Earth and the legend that he created was to his own life. Um, which is really, really impactful as somebody who loves his work and like burning this, doing like doing the research and like reading this and finding it out. It was something that was like it kind of hit me in the chest, like, oh gosh. This like this is a man's like legacy and work that we read when we read these books. Um, so yeah, but why though? Why does all of this matter? Not just because it's an adorable love story. Um, he matters because he's the father of high fantasy. So other authors had published works of fantasy before Tolkien, but the great success of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings led directly to the resurgence of the genre specifically. And this is calls Tolkien in, um, to be known popularly as the father of modern fantasy literature and more precisely high fantasy. So there's a difference between low fantasy and high fantasy. Um, low and high does not mean quality like low, like, like pop culture and high culture. Um, but high fantasy is an epic fantasy Tell me, what's the difference between pop culture and high culture? What in the hell is this? Yeah, so I actually found out about it. What are we? Of, <laughs> I found out about it when I had to propose my entrance to the PhD program for study in pop culture. They needed it to submit it to stuff. And essentially high culture is stuff that people readily acknowledge as culture. So, um, like, Van Gogh and Dolly and, like, um, 
Mozart and like all of these classical works. And so that's high culture. Pop culture is situated in low culture because it's not seen at the same caliber of these works that are already studied and like seen as significant. Gotcha. <clears throat> yeah, that was my response, and that's why I had to write that out and prove myself. Um, also, why I had a hard time getting getting accepted to panels. Um, that's a whole nother story. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> going to talk about a bunch of old people. Yeah, because that's all it is. It's a whole bunch of old people. But high fantasy and low fantasy have very specific differences, and it doesn't have to do with, like, is one better than the other. High fantasy specifically is a subgenre of fantasy, which is defined either by its epic nature um, and its epic stature of the characters, themes, and plots, but specifically the fact that it's removed from the the real world. So... It is something entirely by itself, not, um, it's not held to, like, the science of this world, the physics of this world, the history of this world, the planet. It is its own thing. So an entire realm of Middle-earth or Tamriel or anything like that is high fantasy because it is outside of what we know. In the same vein, technically Star Wars uh, is a high fantasy because it has nothing to do with anything that we already know. It's all detached from our current surroundings or anywhere in, like, human history. Low fantasy, like Harry Potter, is something that takes place within our world in a familiar fictional world. So this is a world that we would recognize, whereas something set completely apart and does not reference what we have um, already in our world is high fantasy. Yeah, makes sense. Why? I mean, this isn't. This is like a kind of related, unrelated question. Why? So, like, if Star Wars can be classified as high fantasy, how come we don't classify it as high fantasy? So it does get it does get classified as fantasy. It gets classified as fantasy over science fiction because of the lack. Okay, of I got. Hold on, let me let me rephrase it. So, like, how? Why does things that are like more medieval or like whatever get classified as high fantasy compared to like space operas and things okay. like that? Um, so a lot of it just has to do with the fact that like Tolkien started this. That's what, that's um, what I thought. Yes. That's what, like, what I'm thinking. Yeah. It's Tolkien did it. It's also, <laughs> yeah, like everything plays by his rules. So essentially like um, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Legend of Ursie, um, that series is high, is easily high fantasy. George R. R. Martin's works are high fantasy. Um, but when it comes, like you can, like Star Wars is high fantasy, but you can't attribute it. So what is the most recent thing that's high culture? So this was my argument. There isn't high culture because there has to be a sub- there has to be a substantial amount of time between that and when it's made. So we're, we're in high culture categorization of high culture versus pop culture. What is the most recent thing that they would consider? I mean, Picasso. High Picasso was like the seventies. So is it just people who paint? No, it's and music. play the piano. It, it's music too. It's music and art. And classic literature. So it's classic music and people who can paint. It's classic things. It's classic art, classic literatures. It's the masters of their work. Tolkien would te- technically be high culture um, because it's like seen as this great literary work. Beowulf is high culture. Um, it's not considered pop culture, which is considered low culture. 
It's a stupid designation. I don't agree you with don't it. You don't want to say what's going... I'm not going to say what's actually going on in my head right now and what how I feel about all that. So we're just... I was just wondering what is yeah. the most recent thing it's you could think of. It's also mostly European, too. Like, a lot of non-Europeans don't actually get considered high culture. So... Well, yeah, because all from Asia. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, like, the whole, like, part, point of our podcast is to, like, talk about things having, like, <clears throat> higher cultural relevance than just kind of, like, namesake. So, like, technically, like, stuff that we talk about could be high culture at it some is. point, right? Guess like, why I wanted to start it. <laughs> we're living it. We're living it. Take <laughs> no, that. No, we all have to be dead. people can't used and to work 2193, with. it might all be high culture. Yeah, no, that, that's pretty much how it is. Yeah. It a whole well, that's all of, it sounded way. You yeah, made. no, that is what it is. And that's why I wrote my entrance my entrance and grant proposals the way I did was because it doesn't make any sense to make that designation. They're all impactful. And that's why when I kept getting pushed back and other things in my program, I said, fuck it, let's make a podcast. You know how I feel about your department, so what's good with that? <laughs> but yeah, so like that, that's where, it, like, yeah. Dear listener, you now know how this officially started. Kate was fed. And you wonder how academ- academics has been ruined. Yeah, Kate was fed up with old old people in academics. Okay. Anyway, so outside of fantasy, um, so the reason that this is also really uh, what has become typical of high fantasy, and all of this is pretty much built on the back of J.R.R. Tolkien, is the creation of their languages. This also happens in other things, so Star Trek also does this. Um, and J.R.R. Martin also So is that this. high fantasy or, or low fantasy? That's low fantasy, but it's more specifically science fiction. But it's low fantasy. So... Because it's a familiar world. What familiar world are they on? They reference well, I mean, history all the time. Yeah, it's, it's it, our... Earth still exists. Yeah. Okay, okay. It's seen as a future timeline, but it's a familiar world. Okay. Ooh, yeah. ooh, interesting. Wait, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Ooh, that, complicate, that complicates it. That ooh, what? It complicates it. So does, is Star Wars high fantasy? I don't know. I don't know. There's different, would, different questions. So depending on your time. timeline of the galaxy and how you actually travel through space, and if you actually add any yeah. physics in this, you could I, actually roll that we say. Yeah, you that could say a timeline. Yeah, you could say yeah. that it's low fantasy. I think I would personally classify it as high fantasy because it's there's nothing familiar about it. Like nothing of it ties into our world. I don't know. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they weren't thinking about high fantasy and low fantasy like when they had that tagline at the very beginning of the movie. Anyway, so yeah. I don't okay. ever think we're going to see any kind of, like, Earth anything. It's fantasy. That's <laughs> yeah. all it is. It's not exactly. science fiction, it's fantasy. Or science fiction, fantasy. Whatever you want to call it, it's fantasy. It's low fantasy. Or low culture. Yeah. Or uncultured swines. <laughs> that, that, that's what the Academy thinks it is. Um, anyway, so back to philology. Um, so, philology is really important. This is what he ends up building up the languages of Elven, Elvish, Dwarvish, and Orcish. And these are full-fledged languages. They have grammatical structures... Um, grammatical structures, usage, um, like pages upon pages of these languages written out in poem, like in like long form poems for these tales that he's telling. Um, there's is like you can like Tolkien scholars like learn like spend years learning like the nuances of this language because that is what he focused on. So when he was making Middle Earth. And this is why it defines high fantasy is because when he was making Middle Earth, he saw it as an actual world. He saw it as a society, as a history, as a culture, and full of languages. 
And that is why he spent so much time and used his philological background in creating this. So this was a labor of a scholar, um, like who was also extremely creative and really nerdy. Um, so <clears throat> are these languages bases that they use for all the future stuff of Dwarven, Orcish, and Elvis languages? Most of them are. So the Dwarven runes are used in a lot of games. It's used right. in, um, in um, Elder Scrolls. Um, but so uh, I know for sure Dwarvish um, because of the runes that they use. Um, but I'm not sure on the other ones. I believe I, I'm like 80% yes. Because you can tell me about at least five games that have at least some sort yeah. of Orcish, Dwarvenish, and Elvenish. Yeah, so, so what I did find is that if they do change stuff, they change it very subtly. and But it, most of it is based on Tolkien structure. So no, yeah. Like yeah. the easiest thing to I, I can attribute it to is because it's obviously like the uh, like the biggest video you know MMOs World of Warcraft like the world that Tolkien builds for like Dwarvish and Orcish and like Elvish people is basically you know what you have in Tolkien like the dwarves literally live in in a mountain in a big ass you know city which would have been like old school dwarven things like that we don't see it in the movies obviously but like you know in the Hobbit you kind of get a little bit of it. So yeah, he's basically every every everything that you have in World of Warcraft is basically like And this is the boat way though yeah. because he's the father of fantasy and he literally mapped this out for everybody to put our favorite things onto. Yeah, he made it real real easy what? for people. Does then why sense? does the game suck so bad? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. World of Warcraft just like changed like a little bit of the stuff and then like basically just copied his template. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. They didn't even have to cop. They literally didn't have to do anything. They literally just had to do control V. And, I mean, obviously the fact that he's the father of high fantasy is the reason, too, why Dungeons and Dragons is completely based on this. And it takes off at the same time or relatively, like, the same time that he's rediscovered in the 60s um, and uh, 60s and 70s. And then you also have, like, all, like, the Elder Scrolls series. Anything with elves, dwarves, and orcs, that person watched or read a lot of Tolkien. Yep, yep. Except yeah. the people who made the actual Lord of the Rings game. <laughs> Are you hurt? I am. He's so hurt. He's so hurt. One, I waited for that game for two years, and then it came out, and it was not that great. It was not bad. Then I played it, and I was like, this isn't bad, but there were so many issues and so many problems. And the sad part is it's actually still going on ten years, but I think like a hundred people play it. And it's so bad I could never convince anybody to like, hey, we, we can do this. Let's just stick it out and we, we like Lord of the Rings. You I, wouldn't even play I, it. I, I, yeah, I wouldn't. I saw some of it and I was like, nope, not my Lord of the Rings. Hashtag not my Lord of the Rings. The Xbox game for the original Xbox wasn't too bad. The Hobbit game. I don't know if y'all played that one. We're going to get into the games. There are a lot of them. <laughs> I know there's a lot of a them. A lot of them. They milked the Tolkien cow dry. Um, which is another problem and another piece. So as we move on, we have to bring up Nazi Germany because they thought, and a lot of people think, that Middle Earth is purely Nordic. Um, So Tolkien, when he was envisioning Middle Earth, he did take a lot from old English mythology, Nordic mythology, and Germanic mythology because that that was his fear that he was born into. But also it was his family lineage. lineage. So his family immigrated from Germany to Britain and um, they changed their name. And But he sees himself as purely British. 
Um, when it came to the Nazis, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, Tolkien vocally opposed Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party prior to the world, prior to the start of World War II, and it was known. And he was known specifically to despise the Nazi racism and anti-Semitic ideology. Um, so in 1938, the publishing house uh, Rudin and Lonin Verlag um, were preparing to release The Hobbit in Nazi Germany. And this is to Tolkien's outrage. He did everything he could to keep this book from being published in German and in Germany at that time. He was asked beforehand whether, um, specifically, they asked him, are you, are you of Aryan origin? And in a letter to his British publisher, Stanley Irwin, he condemned, and this was also sent to them, um, he condemned Nazi race doctrine and the wholly pernicious, as wholly pernicious and unscientific. And then he elaborated on the fact that he had, um, that he found many Jewish friends and he would be lucky to be considered one among their amazing people. Um, and, uh, and was considering le essentially letting the German translation go hang. And just let it let it go. He did not want to do it because of who would be reading his work. Um, he provided two letters to Rudin and Lonig and instructed Unwin to send whichever he preferred. The more tactful letter was sent and lost during the bombing of Germany. And in the unsent letter, he actually well actuallys the Nazis and said, well, actually, Aryan is a linguistic term and cannot be attributed to humans. Um yeah so he did that um and in a letter in 1941 to his son michael he expressed resentment on the way that the nazis uh distorted germanic history and nordicism and in 1966 he actually started fighting back really hard about this idea um, of the description of middle earth as nordic and he del he disliked this term so much because of the racialist theories that were attributed to it and racialist is a very specific term not not it's, it's separate from racist because racialist was the the science of deeming people subhuman it, it was nazi science essentially um which is used exclusively in like eugenics so for tolkien his work even though it may have been inspired his worlds weren't nordic um and so this is where i hear people telling me that i should be upset about the lack of representation in high fantasy and in my mind and in how i have read these books i don't see it like that now the movies did obviously um which you know is a it can be seen as a problem specifically when you look at the fact that tolkien pushed hard but personally this is yeah it's like the the representation and it, for me in lord of the rings is a non-issue because of how Tolkien wrote it and how I saw it and how I always envisioned myself in that world. Um, I mean, like, ultimately, he's it's a product of his time. Like, he's not going to be, like, 100%, like, perfect, uh, at least by, like, our standards. Like, I don't know what y'all think. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, how when it was being read to me, like, how I pictured stuff. This um, once again came down to the fact that... <clears throat> You're arguing within a species, and there are more than one species. Yeah. And so when it comes to that, if you can't distinguish between the fact that you're all human versus elves, dwarves, and, uh, and yeah. whatever else other species you have, then that's, to me, like I've argued this for, that's on you. Yeah. I mean, and you only see 
yeah, I mean, it's it's weird, and you only like we're only in like in Middle Earth, like we don't know, like in the movies and stuff. There's there could be some some black dudes or some brownish looking Mexican people somewhere else in the world. But if you don't read it, is that like that's on you? And I'm and I'm trying to think like like you're right. Like I thought more about you know if the orcs were green or not because of like war like playing Warcraft the RTS like as a kid. There is an argument to be made when it comes to the fact that, like, by and large, like, darker creatures are made to seem or are evil or barbaric or, like, all those types of things. Um, Like, that is, like, that is grounded in some bigoted and, like, racist things. Um, But for me, I, like, even reading, rereading Tolkien now, I don't really see that. Um, It was made in the 50s. Like, these were written, like in in the 20s and stuff like in like from the 20s and the 50s and like all these things like they are remnants of their time so like they may be problematic but i don't think that that's a reason to completely throw them out because they're like um that's my own personal reading um now there are larger issues with like the use of skin color in high fantasy but that's like not that that's like a whole nother issue for like a way longer podcast um but i did want to at least reference that so, like, I think that it's a fair critique with how the movies represented everything, because, like, obviously you're in the 2000s, and they can change it, and they probably should have, but I never didn't feel represented in Middle Earth, because, like, I was, I just figured as one of the humans, like, yeah. I was just a human, and, like, I wanted to be one of the elves or the dwarves really bad, yeah. like, it, it didn't, it didn't matter. You knew matter. you'd never grow to be one of those, you were always going to be a hobbit. Shut up, Matt. <laughs> she did think she was Bilbo. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I just think a lot of, like, the issues with representation come from the movie adaptation and that type of stuff. Um, specifically with, like, is this a whole bunch of white dudes? Not, like, with gender and stuff. Because there are some issues there, but not a lot. I find the women in Lord of the Rings very empowering. Thank you very much. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I obviously, I'm not going to tell, I, like we say every time we do this podcast... We're not going to tell you how to feel. Feel how you want to feel. And if you want to at me and talk to me about this, like, and, like, break it down for me, feel free to do it. I just find that interesting for being a devout Catholic. Oh, yeah. No. So, the thing is, is... Because that, to me, does not... Yeah. That in my head. Specifically. um, Like, I can't speak to him because I don't know what church he was in or anything like that. But he was... He was very conservative, but in a way that, like was also progressive like he hated the british empire he didn't think it should be a thing he was an environmentalist before environmentalism was a thing he saw the detriment of land or the um the deterioration of land as one of the biggest issues um which is why he talks about it um in in the lord of the rings actually from the movie they removed this entire burning of the shire um where the shire is completely gone because Tolkien put that in because he wanted to show the effects of war on the environment and on the land. Um, so he was actually a very conservative Catholic, but he had a lot of these views that you wouldn't necessarily ascribe to it. Um, and specifically in that time, I can understand what you're saying. Like there was a lot of like um, racist reinforcement, specifically from white churches. Um, but from what I, I I don't know too much about his religious life, but I know in everything that he's acted. Um, he's claimed conservatism while also doing these other progressive notions. But I also don't know a lot about the British system of governing and where these different things lie. So I can't speak to it. 
I know the American context in my studies. Mm-hmm. And Catholics were actually, in the U.S., uh, people of color were actually Catholics. Or people who were considered not white were Catholics, like Irish and stuff like that. It's still fun, um, amazing. Yeah. Well, I also think, too, is, <clears throat> is he actually, um, he has some honorary degrees from Ireland when he was there. And the Irish, for so long, were oppressed in, were oppressed in Britain, um, as well as... Um, the Irish Catholic Church, I can easily see him being against the oppression of other people just because of what the Irish Catholics went through in their own land. So, yeah. Did I give you some context? Sure. Another but why, though, he's one of the greatest authors in history. Um, So I'm going to give you a couple of rankings because we like rankings. Um, In 2008, the Times ranked uh, ranked him sixth on the list of the 50... Greatest British writer since 1945. Forbes ranked him. Who were the first five? I don't know. You're not very good with your rankings. I didn't look them up. I don't care. I only care about Tolkien. Phil Larkin, George Orwell, William Golding, Ted Hughes, Doris Lessing, and then J.R.R. Tolkien from. Oh, no, this is a different list. Sorry. Orwell, I could see above it. I'm trying to find the Times one. That was just like listing. Um, well, this Times article has it the same. Phil Larkin, George Orwell, William Golding, Ted Hughes, Doris Lessing, and then J.R.R. Tolkien as of January 5th, 2008. Okay. Okay. Orwell, I can understand. The other ones, not so much. No, Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes and Orwell, I can see. Yeah. Um, not necessarily before, but I can see them as a strong top three for British authors. Um, and then Forbes ranked him the fifth top earning dead celebrity in 2009. Jesus, that is a weird thing to like. Posthumous. You don't want to look up those numbers. You'll hate your life, and you'll be like, "Maybe I should just die and see." What I happens. know, right? Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> I've seen that list before. No, it, it, it yeah. People yeah. that are dead making like fifty million dollars in yeah. their name. Okay, and then like beyond this too, when I make the statement of the great one of the greatest authors in history. Um, Look at what he inspired, okay? So here's pretty much, like, a gist of Lord of the Rings. A young man must destroy an item due to his connection to the life or force with an evil within. The, prona- the protagonist is guided by on the way by an elderly, uh, elderly long-bearded wizard with immense power. Um, I think some of these tropes sound really familiar to other things. All right, so we're going to – quick story time. So in seventh grade uh, GT class, we had to like write our own like short story slash like like mini novel thing, and I wrote one in kind of like a high fantasy kind of realm, and I kind of like you know flesh out the world and like put elves and you know owl beasts in it and stuff like that, and then my terrible teacher was like, "This is just Lord of the Rings," <laughs> and I was like, "Um." Sorry that, like, he created a trope of you have to go destroy the bad person in high fantasy. Like, Jesus Christ. Sorry. Like, you, you like, reading through that just, like, brings me back to seventh grade English. That's funny. It was a great story. It, it was great. It had warlocks in it. Are it you hurt awesome. now, Adrian? Now I'm hurt. Now I'm hurt. <laughs> me, and you, me and you, buddy. We're, we're in this together, man. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so as you can see, uh, Tolkien created the scaffolding that everybody else uses. Um, and it, it, it's not a detriment to them at all. Like, storytellers use tropes and archetypes all the time. Tolkien just did it first, and they're mapped onto his. 
Star Wars included. Yeah, I was like, that's literally a Star Wars thing. Yeah. Like, everything uses it. There's I talked only about... one return of. <laughs> it's the king. I talked about it in the Star Wars episode, how when George Lucas set out to make this mythology, he took a, like, well, he literally took a page out of Lord of the Rings. But, no, what he did was he looked to how other people did it. Um, having a full-fleshed world thought out and what he wanted. And so, for, on Tolkien's side, he cared so much more about creating this legend and this history and this myth that could be followed from all angles. And this is why it sticks. Because he did all of this first. Like, he kind of, like, he already set the entire table before anybody else came to dinner. And it's, like, nobody else's fault. Which also leads to the thing, like, with Adrian we'll talk about. I feel we're going to reach a point where everything's going to be copyrighted at some point. Guillermo del Toro did get sued for Shape of Water. I'm just saying, I feel like we're going to eventually reach a point where trying to tell a story will have some type of copyright or something because it's going to be almost nearly impossible. Yeah. I agree there. I was just real upset because I was like, if anything, <laughs> I'm copying World of Warcraft, which is only copying adjacent to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> so the funniest thing about this is we're actually in an era in high fantasy and George R. R. Martin's a good example of this, where dismantling tropes is a thing and dismantling archetypes and dismantling worlds. So for George R. R. Martin, it's not wholesome. It's not based on friendship. It's based on betrayal. It's not based on the little man can win. It's based on everybody's gonna fucking die. Um, but while they're, even though they're trying to dismantle these archetypes and tropes, they're also embodying them in characters um, because it's so present in their mind. Um, so Tolkien both gave this set to work with and work against, and all of it makes everybody's work read Tolkien. Um, everything's coming up Tolkien, guys. Also, like, I love Clerks too, and I just hate that line from Randall, just because I hate Return of the Jedi. So, I don't hate Return of the Jedi, but, like, Return of the King is obviously, like, the better movie, so, like, the fact that he would even say that, like, just hurts me a little bit. <laughs> Return it of is. the King's the best genre movie uh, in existence. It is the Return of the King. It should be Return of the Jedi Randall. <laughs> Fix yourself, Kevin Smith. <laughs> um, okay, so as much as we see battle and conflict and fantastic creatures, his world is grounded in characters and their relationships to each other. And this is what's really important about his writing, is because not only do you become immersed in the setting, but you become immersed in the relationships between characters. Um, so important lessons are found in the development of Bilbo and his dwarf companions, Thorin, Balin, Fili, and Kili. And um, through them, you actually get to see the dignity of humanity, the virtue of generosity, and a respect for life, as well as a duty to, be to, to, a duty to do good and brotherhood. And so, like, as much as the worlds and the backdrops are important, are important to Tolkien, the characters and the relationships even more so. Um, like, Sam is all types of goals. Uh, Samwise. Um, and then he also, he didn't give ideal, idyllic hope at all. Like, he gave us really, really terrible despair. But the truth is that ultimately it was worth saving and the, small, the smallest of us could fight for it. Um, even when the world was completely terrible. Um, which is probably the biggest impact from his writing, is that it was always the smallest that carried the burden and were able to stand up, even if they didn't win. Because um, fun fact in the books, Frodo doesn't win. 
How dare you say a spoiler? <laughs> uh, but yeah, so ultimately, I do have to talk about the impact of Lord of the Rings in the But Why Those, and I'm specifically talking about the Lord of the Rings. Okay, you gotta move this. It's just getting us all wet, and it's really bugging me. You're ruining the paper. It's my paper. I don't care. So I have to talk about the impact of Lord of the Rings when I talk about their about Tolkien's But Why Those. Um, but I'm situating it specifically before the movies, um, and the movies will get their own section um, in part two, um, or their own episode, however we decide to do it. Um, so um, Lord of the Rings influenced the counterculture of the 60s and the 70s. You gotta hear me out here, okay? Um, so the Lord of the Rings became immensely popular in the 60s again, and has remained so ever since. Like, its, it's popularity started like for that generation and it's continued after that um and it's ranking and this led to its ranking as one of the most popular work of fiction in the 20th century judged both by sales and surveys um the sales of the hobbit which was initially published in 1937 and the lord of the rings which began being published in 1954 exploded in the 60s um and it was driven by a young generation that was charmed by tolkien's imagination and as well as the the splendor of a pre-christian time and his obsessive cataloging of history language and the geography that of the invented world and so if you look at the 1960s and 70s counterculture they don't care about christian myth they don't care about real religion or at least western religion or western religion with bunny ears um and outside of the histories that they knew so they latched onto the truths and the truths and themes and actions of the characters in lord of the rings specifically an easy one is that the hobbits did a lot of drugs in the shire um i think it's called milkweed or like something weed i don't know if it's milkweed milkweed's like an actual plant right it's a family plants okay sure yeah but it's not called milkweed i think it's something weed and it's like a hallucinogenic drug that hobbits take um it's called lsd essentially that's what they thought it was and then mordor is essentially this giant thing for the military industrial context complex because mordor does nothing but damage the land around it kill all of the life pull it inside and push it back out to keep the process going um and essentially of the little guy winning or winning because although i said frodo didn't win it's kind of contested whether he won or not it's it's a whole thing um and then oh go ahead adrian oh um according to the lord of the rings wikia uh pipeweed also known as halfling's leaf westman's weed long bottom leaf and sweet galanius yeah so long bottom leaf is what they call it in the movies yeah, I was trying to figure out what they... I couldn't remember what they called it in the movies. That's yeah, why I looked it it's, up. It's but yeah, I should remember Pipeweed because I'm pretty sure you can smoke it in the game. <laughs> Probably. I don't so know. So they got one thing right? You could sell it. I was a hobbit only so I could make fruits and vegetables in my garden and make money. What is it with you and cooks? They make a lot of money. People got to eat. <laughs> okay. Um, so essentially Frodo as being the little guy winning, but also Frodo becomes the symbol of the draft for them. He becomes this guy, this guy who has nothing to do with anything. And then just all of a sudden has to take on the burdens of an entire realm and save it. And for them, they identified with that as those being called to the draft. Um, and like obviously like look at this through a lens of the 60s and 70s not necessarily through ours i think a lot of these are really relevant 
So the real interesting question I have about this. So this was published, The Hobbit, in 1937. Mm -hmm. So how much does this have on any of actual comics? What do you mean? Well, because this would be like the people, if there's any influence in it that. Would, yeah. Uh, yeah, so fun fact, comics and not Penny Dreadfuls, the superhero comic is almost an entirely American thing. Okay. Um, so the development of comics, like The Hobbit, it like when I talk about popularity, I'm talking, and even here, I'm talking specifically about England. And then in the 60s, when it comes into the counterculture, I'm talking about the yeah. U.S. Okay. That's why I said yeah. I know exactly how we're okay. going. Yeah, yeah. So I, yeah, so I should probably specify this. We're talking about the U.S. context in the 60s and 70s. Well, I know that. Yeah. I'm talking everything about, like, as far as the popular. This, yeah, everything before this was in Britain okay. or the U.K. Is that, they don't believe in comics. They don't, actually. They have, like, no superheroes. And the ones they do are British writers coming to write for American comic companies and bringing it back. Um I'm probably gonna get added for that so hard, um, uh, but yeah. So beyond that, you also have like this feminist, like this feminist inkling coming from the Hobbit or from the Lord of the Rings as well, which a lot of people don't recognize, and it makes me really mad um, because they get mad about women in Lord of the Rings. There aren't a lot of them. That is very, very true. But the ones that we do get, like you get Lady Eowyn, um, Eowyn of Rohan, and she's struggling to overcome the limits of a patriarchal society. And answered, um, and answered Aragorn's question, what do you fear, lady, with the lines that resonated among second-wave feminists in the 60s? A cage to stay behind bars until use and old age accept them, and all chance of doing great deeds is gone beyond recall or desire. That's freaking powerful, and I don't care what people say, that was written in the 50s, and it's feminist as fuck. So... One thing I like about this that I do miss, why can we not go back to our names of, like, of someplace, of Ronan, of whatever? I still think we should Matt. have all of those services. Matt do you of really Abilene. Want to be, yeah, do you really want to be Matt of Abilene? Well, I wouldn't have to do that because it would be where you're from, <laughs> born exactly. No, it has to do with where you live. Well, now. Well, or where people claim you, essentially, is how that, that's done. We'll see. It's not just where you're born, <laughs> we'll it's where yeah. you're claimed. I lived in a lot of different places. <laughs> I'm okay. like you, I have okay. left Tejas. Okay, for here, <laughs> for the purposes of this, it would be wherever you filled out your last census form or your family did in the census every five years. That'd be here then. Okay, Matt of Austin. Did you fill out a census form? Formerly, formerly I don't feel like of... any census. The government doesn't know I exist. <laughs> they will never know I exist. So when you look at the census, always add at least one to that total. Uh, but yeah, that that would probably be the most accurate way to tell where you're from. Um, but yeah, so I like again, I'm not telling how you how to feel about Lord of the Rings or how you feel about representation. Like there could definitely be more women. We just I, don't care. Again, I'm not telling you how you should feel about Lord of the Rings. Obviously, if you don't feel represented, but I think Lord of the Rings actually gives us a lot of material, and so did people who were fighting in those first waves of feminism. Um, they were intersectional, but, you know, whatever. Um, they found strength in those as well. And I find Lord of the Rings extremely empowering for me in characters like Arwen and Eowyn. Um, Arwen specifically inverts a lot of tropes and puts Aragorn in a... Tr in, puts Aragorn in a very um, specific romantic relationship that a woman would have if they were Aragorn's character. Um, so that's something that I will hold to. 
Um, and yeah, so like there could be more women in Lord of the Rings, but I think that the dialogue that Tolkien writes for them is really, really great and really, really powerful, specifically with Gladriel as well. Yeah, I was gonna say like Gladriel is like she's a bad bitch. Like she's she's bigger than her husband. Um, yeah. The fact that she confronts she the dope. ring and leaves it is extremely powerful. I know, I know, we're talking about like the more or less like the book specifically, but like her scenes in Lord of the Rings are like. Like, yo, she will slap you up and down the street. Yeah. yeah. She's dope. Yeah. So, like, I just want to say, like, I recognize there'd be more, but, like, in all honesty, like, these books were written in the 50s and they had so much representation for the 50s. You can't put 2018 on the 50s. Sure yeah. That's like, I, I, I don't know. I think you need to, like, reiterate that point of, like, this dude <laughs> is writing this in the 50s. And he's As having, a really conservative Catholic writing this in the 50s. Yeah, and he's, like, giving lines to women characters like that. Like, that's not normal. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, which I actually really like that in the in the movie, um, how they make Ewan's character. Um, but anyway. I, I am, am no, no man. man. Yes. Stabs in the face. I always thought that line was corny, but I understand. She's 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 it's she's great a boss. for me. It's corny. Yeah, it's, it's great. Gra- it's me. it's great for you. Corny for me. As a woman, it's great. <laughs> that guy deserved to die. He sucked. I hate exactly. Him. Yeah, you can't root for you know the ring race man. You got to root against those people. Yeah, but that does sure? happen in the book. She does. We can she... probably make an argument for this. <laughs> no, man. Like they're <laughs> they're definitely like the people you root against. Like there's they don't have any redeeming qualities there. Um, Eowyn being powerful is something that I've always like, latched onto. Um, so anyway, also check out the friggin' rock music at the time. Led Zeppelin's "Ramble On," Robert Plant sings um, "Twas in the Darkest Depths of Mordor." I met a girl so fair, but Gollum and the evil one crept up. And I'm gonna like play it in the clip race. I love that song. My dad loved Led Zeppelin, which is also why he loved the Hobbit <laughs> and Tolkien. Um, yeah, me and my dad had this conversation like not too like because I was telling him we were doing this episode, and I was like, Dad, because like, I bought him like the extended editions specifically because he he got me into this, and he was like, so we while we were building our table, um, I guess context we're building a gaming table with my dad before I leave, but we were like listening to, like all the like Led Zeppelin songs and like looking for like Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, influences. And of course, like, that, when that one comes up, you know, you, you gotta get hype. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so they, like they create... The devil? Tolkien created rock. He's basically. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so two 1971 Led Zeppelin songs in addition to Ramble On, um, Misty Mountaintop and The Battle of Evermore, um, in which... Hold on, is it Misty Mountain Hop or Misty Mountain oh, Top? Mi- Sorry. It's hop in the book two 1971 led zeppelin songs misty mountain hop and the battle of evermore in which they sing the ring wraiths right in black also were inspired by tolkien black sabbath's the wizard in anthem is an anthem for gandalf it's an amazing song please go listen to it i'm sorry but um, the race were so cool they were really cool um, Genesis Stagnation was clearly influenced by Middle Earth as well, and Rush recorded a song called Rivendell based on the Elven homeland in 1975, and followed it up with Necromancer in 1976, which was the original name given to Sauron, um, who keeps watch with his magic prism eyes. 
Uh, so yeah, that entire time frame is influenced by Tolkien, um, which yeah. I think. Oh, go ahead. Oh no! Like it's just like one of those things I don't think people think about, but like Tolkien had a huge influence on rock music. Like I don't think that's something we think about too often, but he definitely did. Like just all the things you just mentioned; those are like the bands of like the seventies, and they were all influenced I by Tolkien. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so um, Tolkien saw himself as a scholar first and a writer second. And so this is why I want to bring this up here. Um, Tolkien was not ready for the fans at all. He did not think it was important. He thought that his work was just a brand new legend in history. Um, and so, in fact, he spent years rejecting, criticizing, and shredding adaptations of his work that he didn't believe captured the epic spoke, scope and noble purpose that he had set and he was really skeptical by a lot of his fans because he made his life hell like they would find his address they would follow him they would assault him with questions and he just hated it he hated being a celebrity um yeah so i mean ultimately like i have a lot here for enduring popularity but the easiest thing to say is tollywood um, so Tollywood is a portmanteau. I've used that word before in the podcast. It is a blending of two words. Um, so it was a portmanteau derived from Tolkien Hollywood. Um, so Tollywood, Tolkien Hollywood. Um, and it's just, it, it describes the attempts to create a cinemagra- uh, cinema, uh, cinematographic adaptation of the stories of Tolkien's legendarium aimed specifically at generating good box office results. And they put this above fidelity to um the original and this was coined by a tolkien scholar um and essentially tolkien did not want to make a lot of the ones that came to him um in the 70s but they do end up making um like musical animated adaptations animated movies um and i believe there's a song of letter nimoy singing a hobbit the hobbit song uh which is really cute i need Bilbo, it yeah Baggins. i need that it's 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 cute um i'll put that somewhere uh but yeah so essentially like this is how we end up with new line cinema um releasing the lord of the rings trilogy from 2001 to 2003 um as in american new zealand venture with peter jackson and this is where i will cut off and uh we're gonna talk about this in another episode the lord of the rings movies because they deserve their own episode um um, so to cover Tolkien, I'm going to go ahead and bring you through our fan vote why those, and then we'll go ahead and go into our last thoughts. First, from at Adrian Garcia on Twitter. All of these will be from Twitter. Um, I need to formulate my thoughts, but Frodoholic has been my screen name on everything since I was 12, thanks to movies and reading the books. Lord of the Rings wasn't really a jumping off point for me for fantasy. It, it's really the only high fantasy that I like, but it was a jumping off point for writing and participating in fandoms. I wrote fanfic, which made me a better writer and participated in an online fan community. So quick question uh-huh. <clears throat> that you can cut out. Yeah. Is fanfic actually really good for stuff or is it actually just like that piece it's of- really good. Because, like, I want to say I enjoy fanfic, but I feel like because we have so much fanfic, we have these problems when people come out with these movies, you're like, well, this is not the fanfic that either I read or I saw, and people get pissed off. Yeah, I think I think it's both. It's both, honestly. Okay. It's really great for stuff that ends. 
Um, yeah. And then, but I feel like there's so much fanfic that literally just keeps messing everybody bitching about stuff that actually comes out, and they're like, well, that's not how the fanfics all are. That's kind of like, yeah. well, the fanfic for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, Star Wars EU is basically, like, almost entirely fanfic for, like, a much. while. Yeah. Uh, okay, so from at Deuce1042, my introduction to fantasy liter- literature. Final Fantasy was my introduction to fantasy in general. Um, and then from at Plo Mahizi, the first books I ever read that I enjoyed for fun in middle school. From at CJ Writes Things. It was the first time I read a book and felt truly transported to another world. I write to capture that same feeling and hope that one day my work can have that same effect that his had on me. From at I Snow Nothing, I love the stories and characters and Ralph Bakshi's animated works helped me help helped make me fall in love with cartoons and the films helped me find my best friend in the world. So I love Tolkien pretty well. This is from at CPT Morgan. Um, Morgan, M-O-O-R-G-A-N. Um, I was born in the early 70s. The first novel I ever read was The Hobbit. My older brother played D&D, so I was mesmerized. There were cartoon movies made back then about all the books. I wore those VHS tapes out. His ability to create so much depth in the world blew me away. Then when the Jackson movies came out, I was 100% geek. I reread the books and looked at every set photo. I took my daughter to watch it with me so we could share that moment. I was awestruck. It wasn't that it was my imagination on screen. It was better than my imagination. As I grew up interested in fantasy, I realized that he basically created the genre and most things fantasy were just a different take on what he did. Some fantasy did some good things, but he created it. He created it all and set the bar irrecoverably high. His actual writing is a bit dry, though. <laughs> That's fair. Four pages for a tree. Have you ever seen a tree? That's why he made the Ents. It's magnificent. <laughs> Even the trees walk in that movie. <laughs> exactly. Um, from at Zeke Wars 010, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, both the films and the books, made me realize how much fun writing a story with multiple characters can be. Not to mention its vast world building and musical scores by Howard Shore. This is from at North Tomorrows. Lord of the Rings matters to me in ways that it's hard to actually put into words. Tolkien built such an incredibly complex world, the language, the cultures, the history, and then filled them with these amazing tales of heroism that have become legends in their own right. What makes him matter most to me, though, is the different ways that the books show what a hero can be. From Gandalf mentoring Frodo on Mercy as the Fellowship travels towards Mordor, to Galadriel refusing the power of the ring, and Samwise refusing to abandon his best friend when all seems hopeless, among many others, Lord of the Rings shows us how powerful and expansive literature can be, and how tales about long ago and far away can still be relevant in modern life, and that's why it matters. Um, Lord of the Rings is 100% wise. Oh, aha! Yeah. Um, so if you don't know, my handle is Oh My Mithrandir, and Mithrandir is a name of Gandalf, specifically um, a Gondorian name, um, and it means Grey Wanderer. Um, Gandalf has a lot of names. Um, and uh, at North Tomorrow's also writes, I realize this point as well. Lord of the Rings is 100% why I started following you on Twitter and discovered your podcast because I thought the Lord of the Rings reference and your username sounded cool. I get really happy when people notice it because not a lot of people notice it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so what do you guys think about the man, the myth, the legend, or the legendarium? Adrian? 
Uh, yeah, at the start of this episode, I I didn't know very much about kind of like the person himself. I mean, I kind of just know by the extension of all of his great work. So it was nice to like learn more about him and kind of see like the labor of love that goes into you know one of my favorite um, fandoms. I think it's really great. I don't know. I I, I like Lord of the Rings n- now more than I did an hour and a half ago. Um, <laughs> I hope and our I learned the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he's great. Like he's um, obviously like incredibly brilliant. Um, put a lot of work into this universe that has like influenced so many. Like he's single handedly influenced like everything that I love. <laughs> like for the most part, in terms of kind of like nerd fandom. Um, and you can't like not appreciate that kind of stuff. So, so as far as from what his works are and everything, I mean, obviously I enjoyed them and whatnot. And it's obviously between all the movies and the books that I have read, I've read all of them, but the few that I have read and everything, it's it's amazing. And he's obviously put this all together and formed this entire uh, can't even say universe. It's a legendarium. Legendarium. <laughs> and obviously, I love high fantasy and a lot that takes involved with it. But what I find interesting, especially from this podcast and learning more about him, that <clears throat> kind of one of the reasons I know that at least I know I play games and some other people do is from everything we talk about, his tragic parts in the war and he had problems with everything that went along, it's almost like as a escape release of he built his entire own world. Yeah. And Ken capped everything all the way up to his wife in this to where he can live and enjoy what he wanted to be without having to deal with actual world problems yeah that's really heartfelt <laughs> what no i mean it's it's completely true i mean yeah. in the end baron and in the Luthien end he didn't like together. a lot of this i mean you start off with him not liking a lot of the stuff that was going on around him and everything that was going so he just said i'm gonna make my own world yeah i think that's very fair all the way down to where he made his own languages and every exact detail yeah yeah, like, we literally wouldn't have our Lord of the Rings episode or, I mean, our, not our Lord of the Rings, but we wouldn't have our D&D episode or our Elder Scrolls episode. Because, without Tolkien. Yeah, without Tolkien, because the creators of both of those definitely said, yeah, we kind of just, like, you know, really liked Lord of the Rings and wanted to make our own thing that was kind of like it. So we tried it, and here we are. I think at this point we could probably cut off almost ten of our episodes without it. <laughs> just leave it in Lord of the Rings. No, oh, I mean, no, no, I'm, no, yeah, I'm saying yeah. we wouldn't be able to do gotcha. about at least almost ten. Yeah. Of no, our that's accurate. Episodes. Star Wars yeah. episodes, all of those would be gone. My World of Warcraft episode would be gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's Thanks, the big man. but why they're there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We wouldn't even be here. Yep. Um, yeah. So I actually think that might be really true. Um, cause I started, I started thinking about it and I talked to my dad about it. Um, I thought Star Wars was my first fandom cause I've loved Star Wars since I can remember. Um, but I actually think Lord of the Rings was, or Tolkien in general, because The Hobbit was the first thing that my dad really read to me. And, um, he said he read it to me from like before I could even understand it. So like, I think Tolkien and Middle Earth is my first fandom. Um, and like, as I've gotten older and I've... So the trilogy was on stars, and I watched it over and over. Like, I've seen it at least five times now that it's been on stars. Um, just because, like, that world, and, like, as I've gotten older, I've become really moved by the examples of strength in the weakest of people that you would think. Um, so thank you, Tolkien. I need that, like, boost of hope. So, 
yeah, that's it. So um, we can go ahead and do the outro so I can cut it easily. Um, so as always, you can find us at ButWhyNoPC on Twitter. And then uh, we're also raising money for Stack Up, the military gaming charity that empowers veterans through gaming um, all, all of the month of May. Um, so go ahead and head to our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash ButWhyNoPC, and hit the Stack Up panel underneath our video and uh, donate. They're a really great organization. We've done a few Missions That Matter episodes with them. Check those out as well. They're doing a lot to help veterans and active duty service members find supportive communities when they come back. Um, and then you can go ahead and find me at OhMyMythRandier on Twitter and Instagram. Adrian? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at SuperReese93 S-U-P-E-R-R-U-Y-Z 93. Matt? I'm going to be smoking pipe weed in the shower. <laughs> That dope um, weed. That dank weed. That da- no, not the dank stuff. Nobody's smoking that dank stuff.